Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples Magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples Magazine. You can find out more by visiting the website, lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current world events, including what's going on in New Zealand, China, Brexit, uh, just a number of topics. Also, we'll visit with Larry Reed, the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We talk about the uh, confirmation process for Judge Amy Coney Barrett and the Karolinko test. And we'll visit with Jim McTagg. He is the former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books, his latest, Shake the Money Tree. It is August the 19th, and on this day in 1987, the largest ever one-day percentage decline in the Dow Jones Industrial Average came not in 1929, but in October the 19th, 1987. As a number of unrelated events conspired to tank global markets, the Dow dropped 508 points. 22.6% in a panic that foreshadowed larger systemic issues. Confidence on Wall Street had grown throughout the 80s and the economy pulled out of a slump and President Ronald Reagan implemented business-friendly policies. In October 18, 1987, however, indicators began to suggest that the bull market of the last five years was coming to an end. The government reported a surprisingly large trade deficit precip precipitating a decline in the U.S. dollar. Congress revealed it was considering closing tax loopholes for corporate mergers, worrying investors who are used to loose regulation. And these concerns grew. Iran attacked two oil tankers off Kuwait, and a freak storm paralyzed England, closing British markets early on Friday before the crash. The following Monday, U.S. investors awoke to news of the turmoil in Asian and European markets, and the Dow began to tumble. Further compounding the crash was the practice of program trading, boy, alive and well today, the programming of computers to automatically execute trades under certain conditions. Once the rush to sell began, matters were quite literally out of traders' hands, and machines escalated the damage to the market. Despite looking at the beginning of the another Great Depression, the LA Times headline read, Bedlam on Wall Street, while New York uh, Daily News simply read, Panic. Black Monday had uh, largely been forgotten by Americans not versed in financial history. As would again in 2008, the federal government took a number of measures to quote-unquote correct the market, resulting in immediate gains over the next few weeks. By 1989, the market appeared to have made a full recovery. Some now interpret the events surrounding Black Monday as proof that the boom-and-bust cycles are natural and healthy aspects of modern economics while others believe it was a missed opportunity to examine and regulate the kind of risky behaviors that led to the crash of 2008. That's so interesting. In 1987, I just remember that so well. Can you imagine? That would uh, represent like a six or 7,000-point drop in the Dow today because of where it is, 22.8% drop. A lot of program trading still active today, too. Uh, fortunately, futures are up right now, so it looks like we'll have a positive start to the week. Well, the uh, Florida Department of Health on Saturday reported 96 new cases of COVID-19 in Cuyahoga County and one additional death. Now, is that the total for three days or one? They didn't report for the previous three days. On Sunday, there were 33 additional cases. So to me, it looks like uh, the numbers have flattened for COVID-19 here in Cuyahoga County. But that's certainly not the case worldwide. And we'll look forward to our discussion with Mark Schulman later in the show. Uh, as he is in Tel Aviv, and uh, they had another shutdown in Tel Aviv because of what's going on in COVID-19. White House COVID-19 advisor Dr. Scott Atlas has criticized what he said was an ongoing obsession with masks, claiming that the universal masking mandates don't work at suppressing uh, the COVID spread of SARS or COVID-19. Atlas made the remarks during an appearance and fought the uh, Ingram angle, following President Trump's Miami Town Hall event. During that broadcast, host Savannah Guthrie challenged the president several times on his stance on masking. 
host Laura Ingram's show, uh, Atlas, criticized what he called a lame, bizarre obsession at this point with everyone must have universal masking. He cited multiple U.S. countries, states, and worldwide countries in which broad mask mandates have been instituted from Hawaii to the United Kingdom that have nevertheless had major increases in COVID-19 cases. The U.K., for example had required masks on public transportation and shops since midsummer. yet their average daily case rate is currently more than triple from its peak in the spring. The president has a rational, common-sense mask policy, Atlas said. If you cannot socially distance, you wear a mask, particularly when you're at high risk. And I think Americans are getting a little bit sick of this obsession with masks, he added. Trump has resisted man, uh, demands to impose a nationwide mask mandate since the start of the pandemic, which we are really grateful for. A majority of U.S. states, meanwhile, have instituted some form of mask mandate over the past several months. Fortunately, here in Florida, DeSantis has taken a very rational approach. and He's lifted all the mandates. In fact, he's asked for every uh, you know, area government entity that wants to enforce some sort of mask mandate has to get it approved by the state. By the way, Dr. Scott Atlas is the victim of social media censoring. His comments about masks have been removed from Twitter. What's behind that? I think it might be have something to do with politics and what's going to happen in the next 15 days, don't you? I certainly do. Lots happening this week, perhaps the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, to the Supreme Court. The presidential campaign is consuming most of the headlines, unfortunately, less about policy and what each candidate thinks he could bring to the table. And it's more about, uh, well, the crime, the Biden criminal enterprise, as President Trump is calling it. He's leading rallies around the country, and I'm talking about President Trump, railing against a Democrat nominee Joe Biden's criminal enterprise family in Nevada rally on Sunday as loud chants lock him up broke out in the crowd. Uh, Biden, meanwhile, is still refusing to discuss an, uh, an expose by the New York Post alleging the former vice president's youngest son, Hunter, leveraged his ties to the Obama administration for the benefit of the Ukrainian natural gas conglomerate where he served on the board. The Democrat nominee, who's long struggled to explain his son's overseas business deals, was asked about the story during the campaign swing through North Carolina on Sunday. Biden, in particular, was asked by a reporter if he had any comment about the revelations that the Federal Bureau of Investigation had seized Hunter's laptop last year via subpoena. Video of Biden's encounter, which was shared on social media by President Donald Trump's re-election campaign, showed that the Democrat nominee refused to even listen to the reporter's question, opting to walk away as soon as the reporter mentioned the word FBI. Uh, earlier in the week, the Post reported that it had been obtained emails from a laptop that allegedly belonged to Hunter. Uh, the laptop was supposedly dropped off by Hunter at a local computer repair shop in Delaware in April 2019 after being subjected to water damage. When no one returned to pick it up, a technician at the shop claimed to have gone through the hard drive sometime in the summer of 2019 and proceeded to share it with former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. He also reported that he's tried to share it with a lot of other folks, but they had no interest. FBI investigators seized the laptop in December of last year as part of the ongoing investigation. On Wednesday, one of the emails published in the Post, in particular, stirred national attention. The email purportedly exchanged between Hunter and the executive at the Ukrainian-based natural gas conglomerate Burisma alleged that a uh, meeting took place between the former vice president and the representative of the company in 2015. Now, that's a problem because that's not what he said to the American public. The meeting supposedly took place nearly a year after Hunter had joined Burisma's board of directors. At the time, Burisma was facing heavy pressure from both the Ukrainian government and U.S. diplomatic officials over allegations of corruption, adding to the potential per perception of conflict of interest, providing the meeting did take place in and at the time the former vice president was in the Obama administration's point man on the Ukraine since the post expose, the former vice president himself has refused to comment on the matter. He struck down, uh, stuck to that strategy, even as the campaign has suggested that oh, there's no official meeting with the Burisma representative may have taken place. It may have occurred in an unofficial capacity. Didn't show up on a scheduler. Uh, Biden's campaign would not rule out the possibility that the former VP had some kind of informal interaction with the representative, which would appear on Biden's official schedule wouldn't appear on his schedule, that according to Politico. 
Well, President Trump's having none of it. He, his campaign released an ad Saturday highlighting the president's pre, uh, candidate Joe Biden's family making themselves rich off the vice presidency. A Ukrainian com- Here's a quote. A Ukrainian company hides Hunter Biden, uh, hands Hunter Biden a lucrative deal, the voiceover states, as, as the chiron reveals. Joe's Biden's son, Hunter Biden, made tens of thousands of dollars per month with Burisma, despite a stunning lack of experience or expertise in the energy sector, Joe Biden said he knew nothing. Turns out he lied. Biden met personally with a Ukrainian executive after they hired his son. Joe Biden lied to the American people about his family making themselves rich off the vice presidency. The voice continues asking, what else is he lying about? The ad follows last week's bombshell report from the New York Post featuring the smoking gun emails. And there's a lot more to come. Uh, Giuliani said, hey, we've only covered about 5 or 10% of what's on this email. And apparently there's a lot of pedophilia and all kinds of things on there. I'm sure that'll all be revealed in the coming week or so. It's so fascinating and so corrupt and such a shame, too. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples magazine. To find out more, visit the website lifeinnaples.net. Okay, coming up, uh, we're going to be visiting with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabees Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabees Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Commercial about St. Matthew's House, terrific organization, and uh, supported by Lulabee's Diner at the Green Tree Shopping Center. Going there for breakfast to meet a friend right after the show, and I hope you'll go there as well to enjoy great breakfast or lunch at Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, multimedia website, terrific for kids of all ages, including you and I. He's also the author of several uh, books, mainly about past presidents. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. 
Always a pleasure, Bob. So, Mark, for these many years now, we've been talking about current global events and what's kind of, I think, taking the world stage is what's going on with COVID-19. Uh, we're seeing a nice reduction and flattening of uh, new cases here in Collier County, but you're in Tel Aviv, and uh, you're seeing, you've seen a big increase in cases. Right, we had a big increase that was going on for the last uh, three months, basically. Mm-hmm. It exploded in September when schools went back. And then four weeks ago, there was a nationwide lockdown. Um, basically, all restaurants, re- uh, stores, except for food stores and related things, were closed, and schools were all closed. Uh, the numbers have dropped from we were up to about 7,000 a day to about 600 a day at this point. Mm. Um, and the positive rate dropped from about um, 18% now to 4.5%. So clearly the lockdown has worked the problem is how do you how do you get going again without bringing back the disease and that's always been the challenge everywhere is is that once you let go again um, you have to figure out how to do that without bringing back the disease the decision this time as opposed to the first time was to do it very very slowly so this week the uh, school age kids well zero to kindy to kindergarten going back have gone back to school and the, there used to be a kilometer which is about a three quarters of a mile radius that you were allowed to to be from your home and that's now been eliminated and beaches and national parks and those sort of places have been reopened yeah. um, and the idea is to, to to take steps every 14 days and open every every 14 days open up more and then test 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 and make sure that by opening another section of the economy or you know education or whatever it does not bring back or uh, an increase again so the, the controversy days is the period it takes. Yeah, the controversy is: does it slow the spread? In other words, is it just making a delay on the spread of this virus, or is it? Well, look, the the, the answer to that question is: um, it slows it, unless you're in New Zealand, uh, and we can get to the discussion in New Zealand or Australia at this point. You you can either try to eliminate the virus completely, as China has done, uh-huh. um, and you can do that, but it requires a extended lockdown. I think the Chinese lockdown was probably three months, and um, New Zealand was also long, but New Zealand also only has two entry points, two airports, and so it may not be, you know, it's something that's not practical in the United States, where we have 50 states with 50 different different, uh, plans, and we have travel between the states, which makes it almost impossible, plus international travel that's basically not being controlled in any which way. So uh, you cannot, it's it's impossible to eliminate the virus in the United States, without taking totally extreme, extreme, extreme measures. You can, though, slow it way, way down by having lockdowns. And the slowdown, of course, allows allows the hospital system to catch up. Um, It also, of course, gains time until until there are the vaccines. I mean, that's really the goal here is vaccines and or treatments. I mean, we saw the treatments that President Trump had seem to be effective, but they're not readily available yet. They were totally, um, they were totally experimental. So if you slow down the virus enough so that in three months or six months, whatever number of months it'll be, we have either and vaccines and treatments, then at that point it becomes no longer the threat that it is today. Yeah. I mean, if you know that if you get, get, the, get the disease, there's a treatment, and in 95% of the cases it will ensure the fact that you will get better, or 98%, then it no longer is such a, such a threatening disease. Yeah. Um, we still don't know about all these side effects, though. We've, there were so many studies of people two, three, four months later still showing signs from, from that COVID infection. Yeah, right. As well, so. it is confusing. There's a lot of confusing information. The uh, WHO, World Health Organization, is saying lockdowns don't work or are not recommended. Uh, well, the issue of lockdowns is, is, is more of a, that's not quite sure what they're, they're saying, and they don't think it doesn't work. They're worried about the other costs of it, the economic costs and the yeah. social costs of it, which are very real. Right, right. So you need to look at it that way. Right. Look, if everybody wears masks all the time, if everyone stays socially distanced from each other, if you do all those sort of things, then lockdowns are a lot, a lot more unnecessary. Let's put it that way. The problem is people, what the lockdown does, it does something else. It tells people how serious it is. And what you see often is that people are suddenly more responsible in realizing this really is serious. If you say, well, you know, we can keep on life as usual, then people will just, no, life as usual. It's, it well, can't be that bad. I don't see it that way. I, what, what, I see, what I see is uh, that there is a lasting 
contagion of fear. People, you know, after the lockdown is open, even if things have been open up here in Florida, people are not going to restaurants and doing the things the way they used to. A lot of people are being, you know, still masking, doing all the things that have been previously required. So there's still this, this contagion of fear out there. Well, they should be wearing masks. Anyone not wearing a mask when they're in a group of people is looking for trouble. That's the reality. Mm. Now, remember something. A mask does not protect you. The mask protects the other person. That's one of the things that keep on getting lost in this whole discussion about masks. A mask, I mean, it protects you a little bit. It's supposedly 20 30% protection, but mostly a mask protects the fact that if you're walking around asymptomatic, carrying the disease, and you're wearing a mask, you can't transmit it to somebody else. And that's what gets lost in all these things. You, when you wear a mask, you're not doing it to protect yourself. You're doing it to protect the people around you. And since we don't get, you know, none of us get tested every day to see whether we do or don't have the disease, we do not know whether we could be carrying the disease and be asymptomatic. Yeah, And that's why you wear a mask. You're wearing a mask for the society at large, for the good of the society, not necessarily for your own good. All right. Well, Mark, I tell you, let's. Uh, I think we're probably not, uh, coming from different places on this particular topic, and I do think though there is a lot of confusing information out there right now. Yeah, but I'm sorry, the, it really shouldn't be. I mean, I'm, we're coming, I don't know. We're coming from different perspectives, maybe because our political views are slightly different. But I don't agree that we should be. Yeah, there's a science here that's pretty well accepted at this point. I mean, it goes back if you look at the what was done during the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919. Some of the same basic ideas of social distancing, wearing masks, all these things have been understood since the idea of germ theory was understood. Yeah. And, and, and ignoring that is like turning ourselves back into the, into the dark ages. It makes no sense. Mark, I want to talk to you about what's happening in New Zealand and other places. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work, and that's just one of the initiatives. Terrific organization. I hope you visit the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Shake the Money Tree. A lot of that going on in Washington. 
Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I mean, and Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. So you brought up New Zealand earlier about the, how they shut down and what that happened with the coronavirus, but there's other news going on as well. Well, the other news, but it's related. The Prime Minister of New Zealand was reelected by overwhelming numbers. Jacinda Ardern, uh, basically, the, her party got 49% of the vote. And in New Zealand parliamentary elections, that's almost unheard of. Mm. So it was a resounding victory for her, a victory for her policies. Uh, it's interesting to note, by the way, that the countries that have done best with COVID-19 have primarily been run by women. Um, if you have Finland, you have... Uh, you have you have Iceland, you have Norway, um, and you have Taiwan. All women leaders in all the and of Germany, of course, relative to the rest of the EU, is doing better also. So all those countries have women leading the countries, and all have done substantially better than their neighbors. And of course, and, and Australia too. Excuse me. Um, and so they've all done better than their neighbors, and. Um, you know, of course, New Zealand's done the best. They've eliminated the virus. When you say that, it, um, it reminds me of what's happening in South Dakota, as, South Dakota as well. So maybe the women should be making the decisions. <laughs> right. I, women do a much better job as leaders. I've always thought that, frankly. Uh -huh. uh, so, you know, I mean, um, we, don't have a, we don't have a woman running for president this year, but maybe next time. But the fact of the matter is women, should, women have done an excellent job in the world. Um, as leaders, certainly in terms of COVID, I don't want to talk about anything else, their policies or anything else, but in all cases, I mean, even look at Germany, relative to the rest of the EU, the rest of the EU is in really big trouble right now, um, and the numbers have gone way, way up almost in almost every country, um, and in almost every country, also Slovenia, which I think is also run by a woman, yeah. but in almost all those countries, except Germany has done a reasonable job keeping it down, and all those countries are run, that have done well have been women running it. So, so, again, whether it's whether that's causal or not, I have no idea. But the important thing is that whoever runs the country... I'll tell you one thing I think it's causal. In, in my generally watching women versus men in, in positions of power, women tend to listen more. And, so uh, listening listen skills is the operative... Not the sex, but the uh, listening skills seems to be the, uh, the operative concern. Right, but listening skills seem to be stronger among women than among men. Men tend to be so sure of themselves that they don't need anyone else to tell them what to do. It's a, you know, it's, a, it's a generalization, obviously. We all know that from our own lives between women and men we know. But generally speaking, women tend to be um, more receptive to other ideas and uh, questioning things. And that's what I think in the, the success of all those leaders has been the fact that they've, they've listened to advice, they've garnered advice, and they've followed the best advice they found. All right. So let's move on to China and what's going on there. Well, China, we have uh, reports of uh, really excellent economic growth. So it says two things to us. One is that once we control the virus, we can have a strong rebound because China has managed to do that. Um, the virus doesn't exist these days in China. I mean, there were a couple of cases recently, but by and large, China has returned totally to normal life. People are no longer afraid, like you were describing, to go out to restaurants and other places. And therefore, the Chinese economy... In terms of exports, in terms of production, has revived completely, and even in terms of consumer spending, has gotten close to their pre-COVID uh, levels. That's interesting. So I, I know is, that I know that they've experienced a 4.3 percent annual rate in terms of growth in, in the GDP, but that's nowhere near what they had previously. But of course, that's looking backwards rather than forward. Right. Absolutely. Uh, listen, the, it's very hard for them to be growing as fast as they were previously when the whole rest of the world is in recession slash depression, since the rest of the world is their market. Yeah. So, you know, you're limited to how many thing, how much you can export when the whole world is in economic difficulty. Not to mention tourism is still, you're not having any in, external tourism coming to China at the moment. No one's going to visit China. I think they had something in the year of 25, no, they had more than like uh, 100 million visitors last year. Yeah. So those things aren't happening right now. So let's move to Armenian Azerbaijan. This war between them continues despite attempts to reach ceasefire. It's all over a, an area that is um, that is officially Azerbaijani, but has been ruled by Armenian terrorists or t Armenian separatists. And I, you know, some ways along the line, first of all, I was invited by the government of Armenia to, to come to Armenia to, to cover the war, which is not an option right now for me. 
Um, but then somehow I got on this list, and I've been getting tweets back and forth between Armenians and Azerbaijan, and each one of them accusing the other of war crimes. And it's really uh, pretty amazing, actually, how how the amount of hatred that seems to exist between these people right now. Yeah. Um, and I can't really fully explain it, to be quite honest with you. I, I don't even want to say who's right or who's wrong, but it's just people are dying over... Over, over, you know, question of territory that's not really owned by anybody, and it's really, it's sad. I thought we were past that. Let's well, that it does, way. and it appears. I look at the territory; it looks very mountainous, and probably some, most of it uninhabitable. So, uh, again, uh, it, it probably has something to do with, uh, with something other than the territory. Right, but it has to do with national pride and history and all those things. Absolutely. Yeah. But again, you know, resolve it in the boxing ring or something. Don't resolve <laughs> it by, by killing each other and killing your civilians. There definitely seems to be significant civilian deaths on both sides. Yeah. So now let's let's move to Brexit, which has been an ongoing uh, tale of a thousand nights, so so to speak. With, with uh, looks like things, the talks are now off. What's going on? Talks seem to be off. They they broke down over various issues. The the strange thing is, you know, there was an agreement that they had signed, um, and Boris Johnson, for reasons that's not clear to me, honestly, backed away from that agreement and wanted to renegotiate the agreement. And the EU is basically saying, sorry, we're really not interested in renegotiating. We spent, you know, months negotiating this agreement. So now he's telling everyone to be ready for a hard Brexit. I mean, don't forget, the, there was a, the actual Brexit took place months ago, in terms of legally, but the all of the issues relating to trade, etc., sort of stayed in place in the meantime in this interim period of time. I predicted that. And I was talking about. I, I hmm? predicted that the uh, the agreements once they they should have been terminated, but I suspect that the behaviors, the agreements, are probably not enforced in terms of, of what's on paper, but probably they're acting the same way as they, they were before the Brexit happened. Right, but you get into all sorts of legal issues that, that are important in terms of tariffs and everything. Don't don't mm-hmm. forget that they. Issue whether think whether British goods will be taxed going into the EU and vice versa, and mm-hmm. the cost of trade will suddenly go up. So it's not at all clear where this is going. Um, so, but then in Brexit, and then Boris Johnson's been a, has some more scandals on his hands. It seems like uh, personal scandals. So it makes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's put it this way. It keeps the British tabloids busy. Yes, it certainly does. See, I read something interesting today that Nigeria is, ha- is having its trouble with its special police forces, and apparently these people are uh, they're using it as just really to steal from the people for to you know to terrorize them. And so there's been riots in the streets. But one of the interesting facts is that there's got 200 million people in Nigeria, and the average age is way below the world average. So uh, most of the people under the age of, say, 30. Right. Well, all of Africa has a very young population. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start with that point. It has the youngest population in the world. Africa still has the highest birth rate in the world. Mm-hmm. So while the birth rate in in Asia has you know has plummeted over the last uh, fifteen twenty years, certainly in China, but most of most of Asia it's plummeted, and of course in the Europe in Europe and the European Union it's below two. In the United States, it would, it would be below two if it wasn't for immigration. Um, Africa has remained very high, and so it has a very high number of young people. These are big country, com- big countries with large populations, and you know they don't make a lot of news uh, in the rest of the world. We sort of sort of ignore the fact. I mean, you say 200 million people, and we sort of oh, really 200 million people? Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> you probably would ask the average American or European, for that matter, how many people live in Nigeria? They'd probably answer 30 or 40 million. Yeah, yeah. If if that many, right. Um, so we need to, you know, pay, pay more attention to Africa. Um, interestingly enough, by and large, uh, COVID-19 has not hit Africa that hard, and much to the surprise of many. People thought it would be very, hit, very hard hit, but it hasn't been. It's not as been as easy as it's been in Asia, but it's not been as nearly as hard as people feared it would be. I wonder if that has something to do with travel between the countries. My guess is that there's a, not a lot of mobility in Africa as there might be in other parts of the world. It could be. It could also, listen, this whole thing could also be in some in some which way genetic, too. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, the big question in my mind is why has Vietnam done so well? Mm-hmm. I understand why Taiwan has done well and China has done well. They have a, a really advanced epidemiological uh, service and they work hard at it. Uh, I mean, one argument is that there was a, 
there have been a lot of other cases of similar viruses in Asia in the past 15 or 20 years. Maybe people have developed a certain immunity to, or a higher level of immunity. Maybe that's it. But these are all sorts of questions we just don't have answers to. Yeah. Mark Schumann, again, the founder... Excuse me, Mark. Go ahead. I was just saying, we make a lot of policy, we make decisions, but we're still very much in the dark about many aspects of this disease. Yeah, absolutely. Mark Schumann, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I always appreciate your perspective and commentary here on the show, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, Bob. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry, uh, Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Offshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It is brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Shake the Money Tree. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure indeed. Larry, tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are a privately funded foundation, and we secure support from other foundations as well as individuals from all over the country and abroad because our purpose is to educate and inspire young people of college and high school age in ideas of individual liberty, personal responsibility, character, minimal government, private property, all the things that we believe made America great in the first place, and uh, we do that by way of our website, which is at fee.org, and many in-person programs all over the country. Once we get over this uh, COVID-19 business, uh, just a terrific organization. And if there's a young person in your life at, at those ages, high school or college age, certainly introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org. Well, Larry, uh, you wrote a, just a great column. So interesting. Judge Amy Coney Barrett and the Karolinko test. It seems like that's what she's getting from the Democrats. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. 
Yeah, as I watched the first day of hearings, uh, I was reminded of a Soviet Union uh, legal theoretician who played a major role in the 1930s. His name was Nikolai Krylenko, and he was a practitioner of what was called socialist legality. (laughs) And it sounds fancy, but it was really nothing more than saying, well, whether an accused person is innocent or guilty doesn't depend upon whether he did what he's accused of, but rather uh, where his politics lie. In other words, if you're faithful to the party, uh, the Communist Party, uh, and you're accused of something, uh, we'll find a way to find you innocent. (laughs) But uh, whatever the crime that you're accused of may be, if we think your politics isn't right, we'll find a way to get you. And uh, that's basically the approach that the Democrats were taking against Amy Coney uh, Barrett. They were trumping up... um, possible uh, charges, trying to make an issue of her faith, uh, things like that. And it really didn't matter that she was an impeccably qualified uh, and very sharp, uh, personable uh, nominee. What mattered to them was that they didn't think she would, uh, as a justice, vote the way they wanted to for their agenda. Yeah, I know. And it's pretty clear, boy, she's a textualist, she is originalist, she is a person who relies on the language in the Constitution, and certainly is understanding, has an impeccable understanding of uh, constitutional law, as she demonstrated in the hearings. She knew all the cases and she and her points of view. So this is the kind of person that you want on the court. But the t- questioning, to just to repeat, pile on to what you just said, was all about whether she would make decisions that that uh, would be favorable to the Democrat Party, the things that they want to see, which basically in some cases are just not even constitutional. Yeah, you know, it's ironic, isn't it, that all these senators uh, who presided over the hearings, uh, the, the Democrat or Republican, uh, they all swear an oath to uphold the Constitution. Uh, the idea being that, uh, you know, Congress passes laws and it's the job of the judicial branch of government to interpret those laws to find out uh, how do we apply what the legislators wrote to particular circumstances. Uh, and, and then uh, these senators then, uh, when confronted with a nominee who will do just that, who will look at what they write mm-hmm. and interpret it accordingly uh, without uh, the application of any political agenda, they can't stand her. <laughs> yeah. In other words, they actually want nominees who will shred the Constitution, pay no attention to the laws that that these senators pass if uh, in any way uh, they stand in the way of of their real agenda. I mean, you'd think even uh, a left-wing senator would want a a court which took the law as perhaps they themselves wrote it and interpret it accordingly instead of just make stuff up. Yeah, you know, just another observation. I think the... uh legislative branch of the government has caved in and given away a lot of their power to the executive branch. And that's with all these ABC agencies that exist that have a lot of power, but absolutely they're not voted in. They're you know, mainly appointed types of heads of the F, the uh, EPA and other agencies. But the, po- the point is now they're saying, well, since we've caved in and given this power away, we want the judicial branch to pick up uh, what we've given away. Yeah. Exactly, and it's, it, it's just so ironic and dangerous to a free republic mm-hmm. for Congress to simply say, we don't have time for this, we don't understand it, let's just pile a nice big chunk of power onto an unelected bureaucracy and let them make all the decisions. It, it, it's ironic and it's dangerous then when a justice might say, wait a minute, you can't do that, it's not in the Constitution. Uh, The Democrats who are opposed to Amy Coney Barrett really want law to be made up on the fly, Mm -hmm. especially if it supports uh, uh, their agenda. And they don't care whether it's made by an unelected bureaucracy (laughs) or they themselves when they have majorities in the Congress. Yeah, and just think about the context of of, uh, what we're talking about here, thinking about what's happening in Portland, Oregon, and the lack of rule of law. I think most people want the rule of law, and they'd like to see justices like Amy Coney Barrett, not only in the Supreme Court, but in appellate courts uh, and district attorneys. How about district attorneys across the nation uh, enforcing the law? And these, these uh, they're, of course, uh, elected offices for the most part, but uh, uh, this is such an important issue. 
Yeah, uh, you know, if uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, were not a principal jurist, uh, if she just wanted to accumulate more votes in the Senate, uh, she should tell those uh, senators, oh, well, if you confirm me and if at any time the Constitution stands in the way of of your ideology, I'll be glad to scrap it on your behalf. Right. Uh, let's give all power to the state. She'd probably pick up a few more votes. Absolutely. And, of course, they're, they're questioning, uh, uh, you're appointed by President Donald Trump uh, for this nomination and selected for this nomination. So what did he want you to do? So, in other words, projecting their own corruption onto the president. And, of course, he said, she said that he said, well, he didn't ask me to do anything. He didn't ask me about my point of view or what I would support or wouldn't support. Yeah, they're basically saying, hey, what we know we do behind closed doors, we just assume <laughs> the other side always does as well. And then they posture morally as if uh, they're the clean ones. Uh, and uh, anybody who nominates uh, somebody of a different view than they have, a different ideology, must uh, by necessity be the result of corruption. Yeah. Such an interesting column again by Larry Reed, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, and the I'm going to mispronounce this, Krylenko uh, test. Krylenko. Krylenko test. Uh, you can find it on the website, fee.org, fee.org. Larry, uh, talk a lot about politics, but what I really appreciate is talking about policy and what's right in America with you. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, author of a couple of uh, books. His two latest are uh, Father the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, two great murder mysteries uh, in Washington, D.C. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tammy Amy Trail in Bonita Springs, at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulubee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and I proudly serve on the board for the Foundation for Government Accountability. I hope you'll check out the website, vfga.org. We have with us Jim McTagg, as I mentioned before the break. He's the former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief for the White House Pass. Used to do that, but he's right now he's written a couple of books, two great murder mysteries located in Washington, D.C. Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, and a lot of shaking of the money tree going on in Washington, D.C. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. 
It's a pleasure, uh, Bob. It's, yeah, you know. Uh, by of, the way, I just got back from a fifteen hundred mile trip around the country, and uh, this election is way too close to call based on my sign count. Uh, really? Oh, my goodness! When I take a look at what's happening with the rallies, when I see President Trump yesterday uh, in California and other places, it's the enthusiasm for for President Trump right now is just unbelievable. And Joe Biden, I guess, is going to be hiding or preparing for the debate for Thursday night, so he's he doesn't have much on his schedule. I just don't know how anybody could think this is going to be close. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm looking at signage, and mm. uh, when uh, like Indiana, uh, rural Ohio, not Columbus. Columbus is in the uh, the bag for the Democrats, but uh, you go in the rural parts of the U.S. and there are Trump signs all over the place and yeah. and and you you rarely see a biden sign it's the opposite inside the um you know upscale neighborhoods of, the, of these uh, cities yeah. so um but i th- i think uh you know there is such a thing as a silent majority and i think it you know and there is a thank god there's a um an election uh, that it's just not based on raw numbers. You know, you, you know, we, we have the electoral college, which I support, yeah. because the intention is to prevent mob rule. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, uh, give uh, give rural people their say. Absolutely, Jim. So uh, we could talk a little about, if you want, about the uh, the uh, laptop that uh, ended up in the hands of Rudy Giuliani and the FBI. Well, it's got a lot of damaging information. Just the first 5% of the information off the laptop is extremely damning to uh, the candidate, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, it looks like he's it's pay to play <laughs> when it comes to his son and, and uh, what's going on with that. But I think there's a lot more to be revealed. What are your thoughts? You know, uh, before I was a columnist, I was an investigative reporter. So, so I have an innate skepticism. You know, so for example, when the New York Times started publishing uh, Donald Trump's alleged tax information, I was very suspicious uh, that we would get uh, a uh, distorted view of his taxes. And yeah. it turned out that we did, in fact, get a distorted view of his taxes. Right. You know, that he, he really does nothing differently than any other corporation does. So uh, I am very skeptical so far because, first of all, Giuliani didn't get the actual hard drive. He got supposedly paper copies. And although some of the uh, information, some of the emails sound really authentic, like the... Uh, you know the the strain and and, and the uh, emails between uh, Joe Biden and his drug addicted son. Um, you have to wonder if there are plants in there. I mean, yeah. I mean, the whole story of the laptop is really strange, but I'm not ruling it out. Yeah, of course, um, and I think we need to be skeptical about any of the stories that we hear, especially at this time of the year. So I think your skepticism is well-founded, but I think the proof is just pretty... Well, the quirrell question I have is, why did the FBI sit on this thing uh, since 2019? They had this laptop. I just have real questions about the leadership. Of the uh, I guess his name is Ray uh, in the FBI. Yeah. I guess I have friends that are in the you know U.S. and I have a daughter who's an assistant U.S. attorney. Hmm. I mean, they they absolutely cannot discuss anything under investigation. Number one, or they're not supposed to. Yeah. Uh, uh, and these investigations can be, uh, you know, they go by uh, a different time scale than the electoral ca- the election calendar. So. So, um, you know, there may or may not be an FBI investigation. Um, so so and, just to, uh, to understand what you just said, I think you're saying when an investigation starts, you're going to not hear information until the investigation is completed. And that may be why we haven't heard anything from the FBI. Right. And Bill Barr uh, is a Trump appointee. He's head of the Justice Department. And the FBI and the Justice Department on investigations go hand in hand. And I know this from, from my uh, daughter, mm-hmm. that the, uh, the FBI, during the investigation, they also, they're always consulting and being uh, and have the U.S. attorney looking over their shoulder uh, to make sure they're dotting their I's and, and crossing their T's in these criminal prosecutions because you don't want to put in a lot of work, get the court, and have the thing thrown out on a technicality. Yeah. So, uh, 
you know, so I think uh, in the most case, except for the uh, Trump impeachment inquiry and the uh, Russiagate, uh, they're pretty thorough. I, I hope I hope Russiagate was an aberration, yeah. uh, you know, because because that was a uh, rush to judgment. You know, that was a lynch mob uh, yeah. within the FBI, and I, I hope that that's a minority. Yeah, that's a great point. So uh, when off air we were talking, and you had mentioned you've got some energy about this uh, debt. There may even be another tranche of uh, money trillion <laughs> coming coming into uh for to support the economy and of course the fed is actually saying we need that uh but this it all ends up in being a big big uh, uh debt a, a disturbing amount of debt compared to the gdp what are your thoughts yeah well first of all you know, i believe that the um, the virus was an attack on the u.s by the chinese yep. I, I mean they obviously sent people to the United States from Wuhan, right. and I think the intention was to inf- infect us. So, so yeah, we're paying for a war, and and the and the price tag is going to be uh, steep. Yep. And at some point, I don't care, care who wins the election. At some point in the future, taxes are going to have to increase. Now, in the past, it's the upper twenty five percent people who make like from eighty five thousand dollars up mm-hmm. who pay most of the taxes, and it's 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 patently unfair. Uh, and it's a you know putting a burden on on, on the uh, most productive people drags down the economy. So what's the answer? I mean, I, I, I mean in past elections we had Steve Forbes talking about a uh, flat tax, and we had discussions of a VAT tax, a value added tax, which is sort of like a super federal sales tax, which it broadens the tax base. And and what I like about the VAT tax is. It captures people in the underground economy, the shadow economy. These are the drug dealers, the, yeah. the criminals, or the or the people who who uh, you know have their own food truck and are not paying cash guys. You know, uh, uh, people who who are in a cash only basis. Uh, they end up paying the tax whenever they buy something. Well, Neil Bortz uh, 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 was a proponent of the fair tax. That's what he called it. He wrote a book about the fair tax. And I think it's a great What you're saying is a great idea, Steve Forbes. I like the idea so much because it's based on consumption and not on earnings. Uh, but the other side of it is, the problem is, quite frankly, is a lack of trust for Congress because if you'd have to pass some sort of an amendment to have a tax of that tax to the Constitution, and if you had both an amendment passing for the income tax as well as the VAT tax, do you think they'd abandon the income tax? I don't think so. Uh, no, no, even proponents of a VAT tax call for sort of a flat tax uh, on upper income, uh, the very wealthy. So, no, I agree with you. There, there are. It, it's not an easy fix. It, 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 it's, and if it was, were an easy fix, we would have had it done 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and you can't trust Congress not to uh, adopt a VAT tax and then keep the income tax and, and so, you know, plunge the country into a real crisis. So there would have to be some some kind of a some kind of a breaking mechanism put in place. And uh, but again, uh, we can't go on the way we're we're going. I mean, the underground economy is probably two or three trillion dollars. Yeah. Uh, a year, a year annually that is untaxed. So that could bring in hundreds of billions of dollars in taxes. Uh, it also would enable us f- to eliminate the corporate tax uh, or keep, you know, so so we would be a more attractive destination yeah. for uh, corporations. So it, I, I mean, it has a lot. I totally, I totally, I totally agree with what you're saying, Jim. I think it's a great idea. Getting there, of course, would be a very difficult path, but the having having some sort of a consumption tax is much better than an income tax. And guess what? We wouldn't have to be sending all this information to the federal government about us. All we'd have to do is just file one little piece of paper uh, each year uh, based on the uh, fair tax. So I support that. Jim, I just uh, g- genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the show, and I do want to promote your two books, uh, Shake the Money Tree and uh, uh, Follow the Leader. The two books uh, that Jim has written are great murder mysteries. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Always appreciate your feedback. You can send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. I send out um, uh, an explanation of the show uh, uh, 
each day. And if you'd like to get a subscribe to the uh, newsletter I send out, just send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Tomorrow we'll visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. Uh, Boo Mortensen is going to be with us. She's up. Uh, she's actually going to be back on the Paradise Coast, always a lighter side of the show. Seton Motley, a founder and president of Less Government. I'm going to invite my wife on the show to talk to us about uh, uh, her, her newsletter that she sends out, which is very popular. So we'll be talking about what's in the na- latest newsletter as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs> so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.